0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arimus,
1: And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, April
0: 2nd. On today's show, we're going to talk about YouTube's problems with misinformation, conspiracy theories, extremism, and how the video platform has reportedly spent the past several years downplaying and ignoring those problems. A new report from Bloomberg alleges that employees raised red flags internally, only to have them brushed aside by the company's executives.
1: After that, we'll talk to journalism professor Emily Bell about why tech companies are investing so much money in journalism, and more specifically, why they're starting to branch into
0: local news. And as always, we'll end with don't close my tabs, some of the best stuff we saw online this week. That's all coming up on If Then.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval,
1: term supply. Okay, so before we get into the news, I have some kind of sad news to share, but I'm very excited also about the future for for Will, and that is that Will is leaving uh, If Then. This is his last episode. It's been so much fun to make this show with him, to learn along the way, uh, but he's off to Medium, so please, please, please uh, stay tuned in Will's world. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, follow Medium publication. What is it called? One Zero, right?
0: Yeah, it's their new tech and science publication. It's called One Zero, and you can find it at onezero.medium.com.
1: Yeah, Will's going to be writing for them, and that means he's not podcasting with me anymore. (laughs) Going to miss you, Will.
0: Yeah, thanks, but I'm excited to see where you guys take the show. I know you have some really cool guest hosts lined up for the coming week. Uh, I have a feeling that you will take it to another level in my absence, but I've had so much fun learning to podcast and making the show with you. We both kind of learned on the job and learned from our listeners. Thank you to all our listeners for coming on the ride with us and for all the feedback. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing where it goes.
1: Right. And uh, just as I think a, a very appropriate last show, let's talk about something we talk about all the time, which is how uh, these platforms are moderating content. Specifically, though, we're going to start or actually talk rather about YouTube, uh, YouTube uh recommends videos to people, kind of keeps them in a flow of continuously watching YouTube. And that's often been described as a rabbit hole effect because it tends to recommend uh, extreme videos and kind of pushes people towards a more radical place than where they started. I know that I've seen this in my reporting, but there was a report in Bloomberg today that kind of went into detail about how YouTube ended up this way, or I guess what YouTube didn't do <laughs> that allowed it to kind of end up this way. Maybe, Will, you can kind of describe what the report says and and, and what we know now.
0: Yeah, so this is an in-depth report from Bloomberg by Mark Bergen. Um, the headline is, YouTube executives ignored warnings, letting toxic videos run rampant. You know, we've been talking for years, and we've talked a lot on this show about... Facebook's problems with with misinformation and with just all kinds of crap in your newsfeed, with uh, you know Russians hacking the election, uh, allegedly, with uh, conspiracy theories, anti-vaccine stuff. And during all that time, YouTube has kind of kept its head down. It's often gotten a bit of a pass, at least relative to Facebook, for the way that its own algorithm can push people into uh, extreme views for the way it can uh, convince people that the earth is flat and then that vaccines don't work and that Hillary Clinton has, you know, links to a CIA murder, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the report says that actually YouTube employees have been raising the alarm internally um, for years. They've been saying, hey, look, all this stuff that Facebook's going through We're going to be next if we don't get our house in order, if we don't start thinking about our responsibility for the stuff that our recommendation algorithm is putting in front of people um, and for the effects that's having on people and on society. And the report says that these warnings were basically ignored and that CEO Susan Wojcicki made it clear she didn't want to hear it, that YouTube didn't want to go down the path of trying to take responsibility for what people watched on its platform uh, a year ago in Austin at South by Southwest she somewhat infamously compared YouTube to a library um said you know well there's always controversies over what books are allowed um so now YouTube may be headed for, belatedly for the reckoning that that Facebook has faced um and it was it was very interesting to see that the company hasn't learned from what Facebook has gone through or didn't think that it would be uh, confronted with the same kind of scrutiny.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me as somebody who kind of studies and and follows how the far right has been operating online. I feel like for Two years now, people have been trying to raise a fuss and, and really like point to YouTube as a place where people are getting increasingly radicalized and being served, you know, content that is uh, full of hate um and and disinformation. And uh you know, YouTube hasn't really responded as much as as Facebook has, but you know, these these alt-right YouTube channels or whatever, they've been making a lot of money for a while and YouTube has moved to demonetize some things, but it's certainly um, a longstanding haven for this stuff. And it's so interesting to me to to hear that their strategy was really kind of growth
0: over health. Right, but they they could have seen all these headlines about Facebook uh, and, and all the societal ills that resulted from Facebook prioritizing growth and engagement above everything else and not done something about it. One of the many uh, fascinating anecdotes from the Bloomberg story is that YouTube's lawyers apparently would verbally advise YouTube employees to avoid searching on their own for questionable videos, um, so like a, a viral hoax or l- lies right. about political figures, um, because they said if YouTube knew that this stuff existed on its platform, then it could be in legal jeopardy. Uh, so they actually actively advised their employees just to, to like not look or not pay attention to the misinformation, the, the hoaxes, the dangerous stuff that was circulating on YouTube.
1: I mean, PewDiePie or however you say his name, he's the most popular YouTube channel, I believe, or, you know, has one of the most popular. And he rubs shoulders regularly with with hate groups in the the far right. Um, And it was just in December that I reported that when you search on YouTube, which is the most popular search engine, I think, in the world. And YouTube has said this multiple times, that when you search for the word abortion to ostensibly get information about that, the top results over and over again like the you know for most of the results that you got and the top ones the majority all of them really except for i think one or two i'd have to go back uh were about uh they were they were very anti-abortion um and they were like kind of advising women not to get abortions um trying to skew uh people who were trying to learn about this um and so just if the most popular stuff on the platform is this it's of course they knew it
0: right and and What this report suggests is that they they sort of knew it, but they didn't want to know it. And so they they intentionally looked the other way as sort of a matter of institutional policy.
1: Okay, well, uh, this is something that, you know, I will obviously continue to follow because, you know, what YouTube shows people really matters. They have made some uh, improvements, particularly around breaking news when you search for a thing. But that came after... Journalism, uh, you know, I know that I reported and and broke a story on after, you know, tragic events, you know, YouTube was just showing random misinformation. Um, So we'll see if stuff changes after this uh, particularly galling report. Uh, Who knows? I mean, they definitely have responded to journalism in the past.
0: All right. After the break, we're going to have our interview with Emily Bell. She's a journalism professor and an expert on the collision between technology and the media.
2: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Our guest today is Emily Bell. She's the director at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. She's also the former editor-in-chief for The Guardian's websites, and she's now a columnist at The Guardian. She's also a regular contributor to the Columbia Journalism Review. Emily Bell, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. So let's
0: jump into sort of the lay of the land. When we talk about local news and technology, what has tech done to the local news industry and why are big tech companies like Facebook and Google now trying to get involved in it?
3: Well, so um, good question. What has technology done to local news? You know, maybe it's slightly overdramatic to say it's completely destroyed it. Uh, But I don't think so. Um, If you look at what's actually happened, particularly in American local news over the last two decades, there was a decline anyway. Um, But there's been this real acceleration in the last five years. And that's because it's not just the case that people are not reading uh, printed papers anymore. Um, It's that the advertising uh, dollars, which completely underpinned most local news organisations, have just gone. And uh, where they've gone to is principally Google and Facebook. Now, I don't think that this was a consequence that Google or Facebook set out to create. It's just been probably the most unfortunate consequence of having a better ad product than uh, legacy media organizations so that's a very brief background what's happened is you you now have this um i guess litigation of um what does the public sphere look like now and who's in charge of it and who controls it uh between a bunch of uh legacy companies who you know, we know as publishers, we think of them as publishers. And then the platform companies and the search engines who've always said, we don't really have much to do with the generation of the kinds of content or the, the production of journalism. Um, unfortunately, that position has never really been true. So in the absence of a model that works for local news and uh, in the presence of exceedingly rich companies that are, um, if you like, sort of creating a void in local news, you've got this... Um, it's not just a guilt factor, I think, on the part of the large platforms. It's also pressure from, uh, certainly in Europe, regulators... Uh, Certainly everywhere else, uh, publishing companies as well.
0: Right. So now we have the news, which you wrote about last week in Columbia Journalism Review, that Google is partnering with the news company McClatchy to fund three local news entities. Um, Those are new news outlets in communities of less than 500,000 people. There was also more news this week where Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg revealed that the company is thinking of paying news organizations to produce what it calls high-quality news content, and it might put that in a a special tab of the facebook newsfeed, i guess to distinguish it from all the low quality content you get in your normal newsfeed. um right. so what's up with these tech companies uh, can they actually make a, a a positive difference can they help repair some of the damage that their business models have have inadvertently done
3: well it's kind of like one of those things where you get you know if a bull comes into a china shop and it breaks everything and then the bull tries to put it back together that's not an ideal situation um So what you have here are uh, both Facebook and Google, independently of each other, but clearly in competition of some sort, both saying that they will spend $300 million each on local journalism over the next three years through various different initiatives. Um, And, you know, yes, it is better that uh, local journalism has money than, than not. Um, yes, I think that there is a, a principle here that says, um, even though these might not be, it might not be the fault of uh, technology companies. They are the people with the money, uh, and they have caused this deficit to some extent. In local news. So, yeah, they should pay. Should they be the ones directly paying and controlling uh, what? news looks like. I feel very uneasy about that. And I don't really think that they should be. I think that they should be taxed or they should be paying into some kind of separate entity, uh, which can then refund parts of the news ecosystem.
1: You mentioned there that uh, there's a relationship between controlling and, and funding uh, these kinds of news initiatives. And, and with that, I want to get into the various incentives that the kind of different parties that we're talking about here have. So, like, what good is it for Google and Facebook to invest in saving local news? I mean, is this really going to make them more money? Is this going to be a PR hack for them? You know, I can see why it would help local newsrooms that are, like, incredibly struggling to hire journalists or to keep journalists hired at all or to to keep their doors open and and keep publishing. You know, they need the money. Uh, But but it seems like there's a real mix of uh, incentives here. I don't know how it will even benefit Google and Facebook. Yeah, it I, I, seems like they're just being nice.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, so first of all, I don't think they're just being nice. Um, <laughs> that's, okay. That's one thing to say. Uh, but you're right. So let's assume just for two seconds we're not profound cynics about this. And okay. said, you know, what is... <laughs> I know, imagine yourself in that situation. Um, there is an incentive in a way for... Particularly, technology platforms that rely on people's attention and time being spent on them uh, to have an information environment that is not completely screwed up. Um, now, uh, we know that now because over the past, you know, five to ten years, uh, these companies have been largely allowing uh, information environments. To become incredibly screwed up, and what that's left, you know, what 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 what's what's that le- what that has led to principally is a threat of regulation. So I, you know, if we move from the non-cynical, hey, they're doing this because they want to do good and they want to rebuild something that they are close to, which is you know high-quality information, uh, things that people can share, things that people can read. We move slightly more into the realistic slash cynical um, arena and say. We've got an election coming up in 2020 for the first time. There was a Pew survey the other day that was set, said that people are concerned about um, privacy and data. They're concerned about um, fake news. You know, they're concerned about all sorts of things and the power of platforms. Um, we also have a candidate, Elizabeth Warren, who has a pretty credible and very detailed plan for how she would uh, regulate platforms. And there's a growing lobby around the idea that they should be regulated in terms of antitrust, in other words, just broken up. So... um... Is it coincidental that uh, the companies are spending money on this right now? I don't think it is coincidental. I think it is an entirely an agenda driven by the public pressure and the political pressure um, to change something before they get regulated. And Mark Zuckerberg's been on his, hey, everybody, we should be regulated tour this week, which is also a weird <laughs> a weird thing to perceive. But it's just showing how heightened... Um, the sense of kind of alarm is within these companies about what might be coming down the pipe from lawmakers.
1: And as you, you mentioned in your, your recent article for uh, the Columbia Journalism Review, do technology companies care about journalism? An effort to fund local news in Europe uh, that's very similar to what's happening in the U.S. from Google now uh, was actually came, came out of the marketing budget, which was essentially kind of lobbying money from the company.
3: Yeah, so so I was in Europe in 2015 when the Google DNI um, set up, and I did actually uh, ask somebody who's no longer with the company, but at the time was actually um, very instrumental. I said, well, you know, where is this being funded from? And he said, well, it's being funded from the marketing budget because we do see this as being a response to the way that we are being lobbied out. Now, you know, I would give the company some credit for thinking, I think, you know, that they have to have a relationship with journalism, and they would rather have a robust one um, and one that's sincere and in, uh, and informed rather than one that is completely random and um, damaging. And Google has been on this uh, track much longer than Facebook has. So if you imagine, you know, Google News was invented in 2002, or that's when it was, um, you know, launched on the world. Uh, I was running the newsroom at The Guardian, uh, the online newsroom then. We used to t- talk to Google all the time about how we could opt search engine optimization, how can we optimize our stories to be seen in things like Google News? So they've always had this relationship with talking to newsrooms about how we should change our journalism so it could fit in with or be seen by these platforms that, you know, have much bigger audiences than we would have as individual publishers. So so there is a relationship there that they want to build on. Um, the question of, about whether or not they are the right people to do it and whether it's healthy, um, I think is, you know, a separate one. And I still, it still makes me feel really... Not particularly confident um, to look at the priorities of companies like Apple, because Apple has again was you know we had Tim Cook talking about here's Apple News Plus. You know I love quality journalism. You know I want you to be able to access all of this quality journalism. You know journalism is being bandaged around. You would think, honestly, from the outside, it was the only thing these companies were worrying about. And it really isn't, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. It's actually right. a tiny concern to them in the overall firmament of their much larger businesses.
1: And so, you know, one thing I'm concerned about with this, and and I didn't mean to sound so, so cynical. It's just I'm so oh, worried about the state of it's, local
3: news. It's, it's fine to be really <laughs> cynical.
1: Th- I realize the amount of power that they have. What are your thoughts then on the ability for news organizations to retain editorial sovereignty with an investor like Google and Facebook? I mean, we're talking about two of the most powerful companies in the world. Um, So, you know, this, this money isn't coming from nowhere
3: sure well you know at the moment it's a really small amount of funding that's the other thing is mm. let's not get carried away about how right, much right. money they are lavishing on the news sector but it's weird We, you know we've, we've studied this um, for the last five years at the Tower Centre and we speak a lot to um, people within publishing companies who deal with the platforms and also with platform people who are dealing with publishers and how that kind of symbiotic relationship changes um, the power dynamic is really interesting uh, so so, you know, kind of development and innovation within news organizations has, I think, been completely changed by, say, the presence of Google money. So on the one hand, they will say, uh, hey, uh, virtual reality is the next big thing, or pivot to video being the most obvious <laughs> example of this. And newsrooms change their structure. They change their innovation budgets. They change their editorial stuff. And then... The platforms just change their minds. So at local level, this idea of sort of having a a kind of an algorithm, whether your sovereign owner is the algorithm that you're trying to get to recognize your work and show it to a readership or whether it's this theoretical kind of stream of revenue that you'll get from this, you know, amazingly rich and, um, you know, beneficent uh, patron. Uh, it changes the orientation of the journalism. And my worry is that, you know, that independence is pretty fragile. And I think we're in danger, particularly in the U.S., of saying, hey, you know what, um, we haven't really figured out civic media and we don't fund public media particularly well. And a lot of it is very anti antediluvian. Um, if the tech companies are going to move into this space without us having a proper conversation about what we want the civic media to look like, uh, that's fine. And I think it's absolutely not fine. I think that there is no way that a company like Google, which is also, um, it has contracts with the government, you know, it has contracts with local government, it has uh, self-driving cars it wants to put on the roads. These are not the companies. It's it's buying up property, you know, around the country. It's had fibre um, experiments in cities these people should be being investigated by local news. They should not be the platform on which it is dependent. And I think that is a looming problem for us as as journalists, because we can very easily get addicted to the money.
1: So I want to talk about solutions because we've uh, heard a lot of kind of diagnoses, uh, uh-huh. local news you know cannot sustain itself some may say that's because of a lack of innovation from newsrooms for a long time some uh, may point to the current internet ecosystem some may say it's a mix whatever the cause we need to do something about it because stuff isn't right. getting reported and journalists aren't uh, employed as much as they should be. And as a result, democracy suffers. Right. Uh, we all suffer. And so, you know, you've talked about the idea of an endowment, which would be kind of a right. step back from kind of direct funding from companies. Um, you also discussed uh, civic media and that, that, you know, would mean like kind of public media or community media, kind of uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting type stuff, I imagine. Um, but just a a way to kind of have uh, municipal newsrooms. Uh, Can you talk us through some of uh, these solutions that you've thought about? Because you're one of the few people that's actually thought about what we can do about this.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, America is not particularly well served by the fact it's one of the few places that hasn't had to think through or, or just has chosen not to think through having public media as a really significant part of the market. So where I come from in the UK, I would say the BBC is roughly about 30% of the media market. Lots of people think that's not very healthy. But on the other hand, you have these pre-existing funded organizations, which theoretically, you could actually get to innovate in market to create new models to support an ecosystem when it's trying to get from place A to place B. So when I was talking about an endowment that the tech companies paid into, it's, it could be you know what they call hypothetical taxation where is you take a small percentage of the tax that you charge these companies and put it into a, you know an isolated fund that would uh, work to support media which is basically non-profit um uh, it's aimed at reporting on your local council or local city hall uh you know it, it it has that function where it tells you if your water is clean if your schools are kind of running properly all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the funding mechanisms for that, the, the problem is that there's no uh, really sort of um, established precedent for how you would handle those funds who would get to decide where, where they were distributed. But the principle is, is not that complicated. Uh, you know, the second part of this is whether or not there's any political will in America to create a much stronger and more more independent um, public or civic media because you know America's culturally very different to Europe you know you guys do not like government interference in your uh, press in fact you have it um, specifically sort of if you like uh, the, the First Amendment certainly works against the idea <laughs> that you would pass a law that in some way sort of changes or restricts speech um, but there's nothing to say that you can't support you can't make a positive um, intervention in the market so some some kind of new deal. I mean, you know, new deal is very fashionable at the moment. We have AOC with her green new deal. You know, where is the <laughs> yes. new deal? Where is the new deal for civic media? You know, where is the new deal that says if you want to start a small community newsroom or if you want to start actually kind of you know a statewide network, that there would be some way of um, funding it, administering it, uh, some kind of funding for innovation. None of that exists at the moment. It's a lot of it is left to local. Um, NPR stations which actually have been pretty innovative um, and, and it that feels to me just like a fundamental problem when you have such an unstable um, commercial environment and I would say you know everything we've seen ha- from Facebook certainly and and increasingly you know from Google and YouTube is that is that we don't have a stable information environment at the moment.
1: No, sustainability is really key here. Just to give a a personal uh, reflection on this, I worked with a group of people for many years to pass a law. We actually passed a law in 2011 that allocated all unused FM spectrum for local community stations. It was the largest expansion of community radio in U.S. history. Uh, These stations are now going on the air and they have no money. And they're not right, allowed to right. have uh, advert. They're not allowed to have advertising because they're they're community licensed, so they have to get local underwriting. Uh, and it just seems like we're structurally set up in such a way so that there's there's just no way for hyper local newsrooms to establish themselves. <laughs> and and I've just I've been I've just worked on this for so long.
0: So <laughs> yeah. So, so first. I hear so first you. Of,
3: yeah. So first off, you did God's work there, which is some of these can be structural interventions. You know, like. If we think about the current environment and we think about the platforms, you know, the one thing they do not do at the moment is make it possible. To make a living from reporting um, high-quality news on their platforms, and part of that is actually just fundamental design flaws. You know, the the the, the things that are prioritized on platforms are interesting, viral content. They return more money, um, and the cost of creating the um, product is not taken into account in the in the platform design. Um, when you have Mark Zuckerberg this week saying we should maybe be funding high-quality journalism directly. It's like, why don't you just change your platform so that if people are doing good work, they get paid for it? You know, that's a design problem. It's not a question of him kind of being, you know, picking <laughs> picking people out of lineup line mm-hmm. up and saying, yeah, I'll have that article up, because they don't know. They, they are not journalists. They don't really know what they're doing in this arena. And so I think your point about, you know, as I say, doing amazing work with Spectrum, those are the kinds of things we have to do, but then we have to have the funding as well. You can't just, as you say, have a system of distribution that you don't then pay creators and reporters for. Paying reporters is what this is all about. You know, It's like you have to pay people to go out and report. Right, and I liked
0: what you said earlier about how it's like the algorithm was controlling journalism. It reminded me of our interview last week about how Uh, gig economy workers are, are in some sense, their boss is an algorithm. The media, in some sense, their boss has been an algorithm, at least in online media, at least in the advertising-supported online media sector over the past few years. There are a couple things we've touched on that are initiatives by some of these big tech platforms to try to make journalism more viable there um one of them is facebook has a product called today in it's like a, a today in local news and it's supposed to show you a cluster of stories from your area when you log into facebook um, from local publications it, it it built that and started testing it and then found that in a bunch of uh regions around the united states there isn't enough local journalism even being produced to support that right. feature Uh, These are called news deserts. Um, Facebook more recently has come up with a plan to pay some publishers to produce content uh, that might go in a different tab. Um, We've heard a lot about Apple News, um, developing this product called Apple News Plus, where you pay Apple a monthly fee and and then it divides the revenues among uh, 300 different magazines. Um, Do any of those initiatives seem to you to hold significant promise uh, in terms of creating a better news environment?
3: I mean, you know, I, I don't want to uh, say it is a bad idea that all of these companies are thinking one way or another about the quality of the work that's on their platforms or what people are reading and consuming and whether, in fact, it's actually, you know, a, a, a sustainable. And um, I think that that's a good thing. Um, I don't think any one of those initiatives uh, holds enough promise for us to really start to kind of re- figure what we're doing. And I think that's the problem, which is, you know, we're right at the beginning of a really, I think, long and difficult period of understanding that the information environment that we live in has been created very rapidly, uh, with almost n- with no thought about you know civic engagement or information built into it. So we're going to have to kind of retrofit things into that. And I think all of these individual initiatives are fine. I think what worries me is that I don't see very much on the policy side of these companies about rethinking that very big core concept of if we are actually now. Y- information utilities. What does that mean for us? And I think that they're not necessarily the right people to do the thinking. So we need people in government and we need people in regulation to do that thinking. Now, current administration, no chance that that will happen. I have some hope that somebody will start to think about it um, in the next administration. But it's a really, I think, very difficult, long-term problem. You know, perhaps the best news of all of this is that we're all on the same page and we're all talking about the same things. You know, the the platforms are no longer denying that they don't have any agency in this world. There is no longer this uh, fantasy, frankly, um, perpetuated... Um, that if only newsrooms tried a bit harder or a bit more innovative, that they could, uh, you know, kind of make a business out of this. Look, there's all sorts of things wrong with the legacy press. And there's a lot of local newsrooms, frankly, that we wouldn't want to rebuild in the way they were built before. But we do have a generational opportunity here, I think, to make things better. Um, But I don't think we can do it without some very, very structural things happening, um, which enable people to go out and do independent journalism and be funded for it in a market which is not paid for by advertising, and probably not paid for entirely by subscribers either. Because, you know, that just means that there'll be poor areas, there'll be areas which are very sparsely populated, where you just, you know, don't have enough people doing the work.
0: All right, Emily Bell, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Will. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
2: First, the bad news. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. All
0: right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week?
1: So the tab that I couldn't close this week was a report from CNBC entitled Tesla Cars Keep More Data Than You Think, including this video of a crash that totaled a Model 3. And this is about uh, when Teslas get totaled, uh, their computers often stay intact and go to the car graveyard, the wrecking lot with the car. And there's a ton of data in those computers about the driver uh, that is really, really personal data and it just shows kind of as as our computers turn in, or as our cars turn into computers uh, and our cars have always been really personal places uh, that they are surveillance machines as well. I mean inside this wrecked Tesla where they pulled the computer out, they saw the call history and phone books of 11 different phones that had paired with the Tesla video footage from inside the car, navigation history, um, you know, outside cameras, inside cameras, I mean just a ton of Personal information. And uh, it's just like fascinating to me that, you know, we're moving into this kind of dystopian future where you go to a a wrecking lot and you can pull out, uh, you know, all of this this data about who was in the car. And it's just this diary of the car that, you know, can show it has a lot of evidence in it, in fact. Um, And people want if you want to opt out of this data collection, you own a Tesla, then you also kind of opt out of updates that go over the air. So it's, it's a fascinating report to just kind of show what these cars with computers in them do and, and, and how we can think about privacy in a car. And, you know, I think even a room, there's even room for kind of targeted privacy legislation just looking at cars if we wanted to take a more piecewise approach rather than uh, just data privacy, you know, sweeping data privacy laws. Um, but really a, a fascinating report I recommend people take a look at. Um, Will, what tab could you not close this week?
0: All right. Uh, This weekend, Netflix is going to drop a huge new nature documentary series. It's called Our Planet. Oh. It's from the same team that did the famous BBC nature documentaries uh, like Planet Earth. Um, It's produced by Alistair Fothergill, narrated by David Attenborough. And uh, there was a review. I have not watched it yet. I should disclose, but I read a review of it in The Atlantic by Ed Young, who's one of my favorite science writers, Um, The headline of his review is Netflix's Our Planet says what other nature series have omitted. And he says that unlike the Planet Earth series, uh, the Netflix series really will not let you forget about how everything you're seeing is being changed by uh, climate change, by deforestation. You watch something amazing transpire on screen, and then they remind you, you know that this ecosystem is being destroyed, and that you know what you've just seen—it might be one of the last interactions of this sort that will be seen because of the destruction of the natural environment. Um, there's a, apparently a long time-lapse sequence in which you can watch the jungles of Borneo being turned into uh, palm oil plantations and just this huge, vast agricultural monoculture. Yang says that it's it's actually painful to watch. And so it's a nature documentary that does not gloss over the fact that, that nature as we know it is disappearing.
1: So that's something I'm so interested in. There's been a broad criticism of Attenborough's work, uh, even his recent work with the BBC, saying that they go through great lengths to show the natural world as it's supposed to exist, you know, uh, omitting human harms. Um, and so it's fascinating now that we're seeing... Uh, you know, the new documentary specifically addressing this. I really look forward to watching this. That's a great tab. Thank you, Will.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about it too. And and I, I also feel really good that after sort of infamously always doing real downers as tabs on this show, I think I've managed to leave us on one of the, like the biggest downer tabs of all time. So, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry for that.
1: I... I- know I, I think uh, it's, it's right in line with your interest because it's media criticism um, and and one that uh, is just so important uh, you know how do we show the way things were or the way things are or the way things should be um, when it comes to documenting the natural world uh, critical question and uh, one that we really need to pay attention to um, as uh, as the natural world is disintegrating uh, and I think that does it for our show and will's last show with us this week Uh, i will miss you will uh you can email us still though even though will will not be getting the emails if then at slate.com send us your tech questions show and guest suggestions or just say hello
0: yes i'm gonna miss doing this so much uh you can follow me in april on twitter as well i'm at will remus april is at april laser
1: thanks again to our guest the instemutable emily bell you can find her on twitter at emily bell And thanks so much to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time in doing so.
0: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America.
1: If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash futurenews. Our producer is Cameron Drews. And thanks to Topher Roof uh, for engineering here in UC Berkeley.
0: And normally this is where we'd say we'll see you next week. I won't see you next week, but April will. And I bet it's going to be a great show.
1: Will, you are missed already. You will be missed more when you're fully gone, gone. Uh, Folks, please continue to follow Will on Twitter and follow his forthcoming work in Medium that should be starting mid this month. Bye, everybody.